from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Don Hawley on November 6, 2017. Don is the author of the book Jenny, How Virginia Rogers Went from Broke to Blessed, which is an interesting biography about a woman who was penniless and left having to support two children and became a business success. Don reads an excerpt from the book in the interview. I started the interview by asking Don where he grew up. And what was religious life like growing up? I'm a 12th generation American. I grew up with an army father. So I lived all over the world, including the Philippine Islands, as a boy. And on various army posts like uh, Fort MacArthur in San Pedro, California. And then I went to um, Culver Military Academy for four years as my high school. Then I graduated and went to the University of Hawaii for two years. Then I went to the University of Michigan, where I spent about six years getting a bachelor degree in architecture. Later on, 10 years later, after working as an architect for the Bureau of Indian Affairs, I took courses in engineering and got a master's degree in engineering. So I switched from architecture to engineering and was a research engineer for two and a half years, and then worked for many um, large companies, some to, one, of, one of them overseas in Bangladesh. And what was religious life like growing up for you? Well, my mother was a um, Christian. I, was t- I attended army chapels, which were rather just Protestant in general. I considered myself um, in, in, in that sort of general category, I realized that all religions were basically the same. I was not interested in just being a Christian per se. I didn't know what I was going to have, what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. Describe for us your spiritual journey that led you to the Baha'i faith. Well, when I was in uh, Culver Military Academy, my art teacher was my confidant, I mentioned to him what I thought about religion, and he suggested I ought to look up at the Baha'i faith in the Encyclopedia Britannica. I did, and it was a very small article, a very negative article, and uh, I decided I didn't like it, uh, so uh, I just forgot about it. But uh, I actually visited a friend of my aunt's in Chicago, and she drove me by the Baha'i Temple. And uh, we didn't stop and go in or anything, but I saw it. Some years later, when I was at the University of Michigan, I was on a holiday vacation. And uh, my brother and I had seen every movie in town. We didn't know what to do. So we looked through the newspaper for something to do. And we found at the bottom of a page about one inch article about a Baha'i fireside. And my curiosity was perked. And uh, I said to my brother, should we go there? 
And he said, what is it? I said, it's about a religion. And he said, okay, let's go. So we went. I didn't expect to um, find anything, but uh, I was surprised at the answers I got from the people. And I told a fellow next to me who later became a very good friend that I had always believed that if I had lived in the time of Christ, I would have been one of those to follow him. And I believed that the, bit, the biggest wish I could have was to be born at the time when the, uh, a new prophet came so that I would know whether I had the wisdom to be able to see it and follow it or I would deny it. And he said, your wish has been granted and handed me Baha'u'llah in the new era. Well, I was trapped. So, Don, what is Baha'u'llah in the new era? What is that? Well, I didn't know at the time. I I just thought, well, I'll read the book because I was trapped. He said it was a new religion from a strange person with a strange name in a strange place. And I should read it and decide whether it was right or wrong. So I said, I had always promised that this was my wish. So I said, okay, I'll do it. I took the book home and started reading it and was amazed at how wonderful it was and what a great uh, man this Baha'u'llah was who was the subject of the Baha'i faith. It attracted me and I knew right away that I had to be a Baha'i. So within three days, I decided to be a Baha'i. I called up the Baha'is and said I wanted to be a Baha'i and they wouldn't let me right away because they said, I have to do more reading. I told them, okay, I'll have to do that. So I did it. About three weeks later, I got a letter from the National Spiritual Assembly and it was dated on my birthday, my 23rd birthday. And it said, you are a Baha'i. So the just for folks who don't know, the National Spiritual Assembly is the national governing council for the Baha'is in every country that's elected by the Baha'is. So how long ago was this done? It was 1953, or 51, excuse me, 51. It was my 23rd birthday, and uh, it was September 25th, 1953. And I became a Baha'i, that was 67 years ago, and I'm still there. <laughs> and I've done what I can all over the world for the Baha'i faith, including Casablanca, Morocco, and Bangladesh. So I'm speaking with Don Hawley, who is the author of Jenny, and the subtitle is How Virginia Rogers Went From Broke to Blessed. So, Don, what inspired you to write this book about Virginia Rogers? Well, I, I met Virginia Rogers in um, Austin, Texas. My son actually worked for her for a while. And uh, she is one of the most, uh, probably the most remarkable human being I have ever met. Uh, she did absolutely amazing things. She uh, started out as a, a Lutheran Christian and uh, was very devout. She always attended church every Sunday, regardless of what else she did. And she became a hippie. And not only that, got heavily into drugs and sex and uh, other things. But then eventually she went to Austin, Texas, and in tattered rags and holy tennis shoes, 
she actually started a business called Ginny's, which was a quick, quick copy business. Well, she ended up with nine stores and she revolutionized the whole quick copy industry nationwide and became famous for that. And then she later founded the uh, nationwide franchise uh, called Relax the Back, which she eventually sold. She became a multimillionaire and eventually became a Baha'i and changed her whole lifestyle. About 1955, or no later than that, probably 1970, she used hippies to run her store. She signed for a Xerox machine that was very expensive on her kitchen table and put it on the second floor of a building and charged uh, eight cents a copy, which was cheap at that time. And she was doing such a big business that she was able to move into a mall later. And uh, pretty soon she had people calling her and begging her to open stores in their malls and different places because she was producing fantastic amount of work with these hippies at a terribly low price and um, did this with still making a million dollars or so. From a material standpoint, what was it that you think was able to turn her around from being a druggy hippie to being a, a prosperous businesswoman? Her husband uh, more or less abandoned her and she had to go on her own. And so she, she just decided to uh, um, make a quick copy business and make some money for that. And she was so good at it and produced so much that um, she became the envy of Austin, Texas and uh, became famous in Austin for her entrepreneurial cleverness. So I'm speaking with Don Hawley, author of Jenny, How Virginia Rogers Went from Broke to Blessed. Uh, So you have a passage prepared that describes her discovery of the Baha'i faith? Yes, I have it in uh, in the book, uh, Ginny. And to me, it's um, a very interesting and remarkable transition and how she did it. Okay. She had become ill and she was home uh, recuperating from a nervous breakdown. And she said, because of, this is from the book, because of her illness, friends brought Ginny a string of books one after the other. One of these was given to her by a woman who dropped it off at Ginny's office while Ginny was out. A note attached to it said, thought this might be interesting for you to read. The title of it was Thief in the Night. And although she bought it home, she, like many, didn't read it. Mystery stories were not one of her favorite gems or genres. So it sat on her bedside table for weeks, hardly glanced at, maybe longer than that. But I had so many books. You cannot imagine how many people brought me books. And I'm not a real fast reader. But one night it became the center of a mystery that was stranger than anything she had ever experienced before or after. It happened sometime after her second hospitalization when she was alone at home. By arrangement with Keith, both David and Carrie, 
spent every other weekend and some week weekdays visiting their father. It was not only a fair arrangement to Keith, it gave her the privacy that she needed to carry on her numerous sexual liaisons. Although the children were with Keith, she was alone, a rare arrangement. She doesn't know what time it was, but it must have been earlier than usual because of what subsequently took place. Usually she was up quite late, a pattern that continues to this day. She had said her prayers, but hadn't turned off the light yet. She was just lying there with her eyes closed, not even consciously meditating. Suddenly she heard a voice, a deep masculine voice, one she had never heard before, nor has ever heard since. It was from somewhere in the room, and there was nobody in the room. There was nobody in the house but me, and the voice said, This is your book, Jenny Rogers. She st it startled her and made her heart pound. When her eyes flicked open in reaction, there it was. She was lying on her side so that she was staring at the mystery book, seeing of it only the GR2 on its spine. It seemed to scream out to her, her own initials, GR. I knew instinctively that that was what the voice was talking about, but I never had experienced anything like that. It was both frightening and unbelievable. So I got up out of bed, put my robe on and started searching. The house is large. It's a split level with the bottom part about four feet lower than the rest. The lower level has a separate apartment complete with kitchenette, utility room and bathroom. She checked it all, going through the house from top to bottom, checking every nook and a cranny, every window and door. There was no sign of any kind that there was anybody around, but I heard that voice. It was not from inside my head. I am thoroughly convinced of it. It's only when you experience it yourself that you can be that sure. Others can laugh at it, but when it happens to you, it is no laughing matter. She went back to her room, more mystified than ever, and not a little shaken. She had been on pot for years and had had many wonderful and odd happenings with and because of it. But this wasn't the same. She knew as much by experience, and the sound of the voice was still reverberating through her head, as if haunting her with its seriousness. She didn't know what it was or what caused it, with a certainty that comes from something much more than sheer logic, fragile logic, she knew only that I was supposed to read this book. She started to read it, beginning with the introduction. And when I got to the end of the introduction, I threw the book across the room with all the force I could muster. To her surprise, the book wasn't a standard mystery at all. Instead, it was a religious book, work, written by the prominent Baha'i William Sears, a former sportscaster and children's host show in the park at WCAU-TV in Philadelphia. Also a hand of the cause of the Baha'i faith, he died in Tucson, Arizona on March 25th, 1992, just three days short of his 81st birthday. The lady who gave the Virginia the book was not a Baha'i, but had taught a comparative religions course and had received it from a student. The passage that so upset Virginia was, quote, the following chapters are the record of my several years of search. They offer my solution to this intriguing century-old mystery. They suggest that our modern newspaper men are 100 years too late in wishing that they were able to print the dramatic headline, Christ Returns. 
In fact, our press has been scooped by over a century. You will find here considerable evidence to show that when the newspapers and publications of the 1840s printed their stories headed Return of Christ Expected, they were printing not fantasy, but fact, even though they were unaware of the nature of the story at the time and were totally unable to substantiate its truth in that hour. If what I have uncovered is the truth, then, according to the testimony of the hard-boiled newspaper editors of the West, it is the most shocking and dramatic story that anyone could possibly tell in print. But will anyone believe me? You are now starting where I started a few years ago on the strange case of the missing millennium, unquote. I was shaking. Up to this point, I'd kept son Sandy in my prayers because she'd forgotten She'd gotten into this weird Eastern religion. It didn't seem to me doing her any harm. Certainly, she told me how wonderful the Baha'is in Houston were to her. I was grateful for that. But my gosh, she was following, it seemed, from this a false prophet. I had had no idea that the, this Baha'i faith had anything to do with the return of Christ. I was simply horrified. My hands were still shaking. It was pure heresy to Ginny, of course, and she didn't know what to make of the voice, but there was no denying that it happened. I don't expect anyone to believe it. Some people do and some people don't, but it's the truth. I did hear that voice as sure as I'm sitting here. The more she thought about it alone in the house with that book, her hands icy cold with apprehension, the more she began to realize what the voice had indicated for her. She was to read the book in order to refute Sandy's belief. It was an opportunity to help save her friend's soul. With this purpose in mind, and only this purpose, Ginny started to read the book. She didn't stop until she finished it. After the second passage referring back to the Bible, she took her own Bible and laid it beside her for quick cross-reference. Checking carefully the passages quoted, she found more and more as she read that her aim of refuting it, refudiating it was foolhardy. What's more, it began to astonish her. As a teenager, she had been very much into church activities, was president of the League, Lutheran League, was Lutheran Youth of the Year, her senior year in high school, delivering a sermonette on Youth Sunday and attending the National Lutheran Youth Conference in Texas. So involved and active was she that she wanted very much to become a missionary and spoke to her pastor about it when she was went through her confirmation class. In response, response, Reverend Lorimar, her pastor, suggested that there were two things she needed to do to prepare herself. One, study that, the Bible, and two, study other religions so that she could deal with them. She had taken this advice seriously and done both in depth, but had come up with results that both excited and perplexed her. Much of the Bible she found exhausting and dry. But the particular branch of theology Virginia found daunting was the mass of doctrine and interpretation surrounding the second coming. Putting more time and effort into eschatology than any other part of her studies, she tried to use her mathematical and logical skills to determine the time of Christ's return. Yet no matter how she read or interpreted prophecies, she always arrived at the conclusion that the second coming should have occurred during the 19th century already passed. When she went to Pastor Lorimer with a problem, asking if she had missed something important, 
he wasn't able to give her the definite answer she wanted. As she expected, he was understanding and patient, but told her that he did not know the answer. He wished he did. He knew only that the Bible said that in the end time, all things would be made known. Quoting the 16th chapter of John, all he could add was, we must not be in the end of time, and the spirit of truth must not have come because we sure don't know it all yet. Meanwhile, Jenny's study of other religions convinced her that all of them had to have come equally from God. It was difficult for her to reconcile the fact that all religions taught much the same thing with their followers' belief that each of them was truly exclusive of all the others. Recalling Jesus' lesson about the good tree bearing good fruit, while the bad tree cannot bear bad good fruit, reinforced her conviction. When she asked Pastor Lormer about it, he just nodded his head and, as she remembers it, said, I know. That's why I never went to a missionary. I could never bring myself to try and convert somebody who believed in Buddha, for instance. If somebody didn't believe at all, I could do a lot for them. Or if somebody believed in God and Jesus, I could help them to be better Christians. But otherwise, I was lost. He then told her, Jenny, if you ever find anything that comes closer to the truth than the Lutheran Church does, you should follow it. I have yet to find anything else that comes close, closer. That's why I'm still a Lutheran. Now in Bill Sears' book, Jenny found precisely what she had concluded independently 20 years before. And while she knew intuitively and indisputably that it was indeed the truth, had indeed known for all these years, it put her in a half-fearful quandary. She had always believed that if she found the truth to her own mystery of those days, she would, as Pastor Lawrence Darmer told her to do, be able to follow it. For only a moment now, she hesitated. It was four o'clock in the morning. She had reached the point of making what could be the most important decision of her life. If she waited until the light of day, it might rob her of this once in a millennium opportunity. But what could she do? Pastor Lorimer was probably had long gone, and Sandy was several hundred miles away. It was still dark outside and cold inside. End of chapter. Very nice. So I'm talking with Don Hawley, who has just read a passage from his book, Jenny, How Virginia Rogers Went from Broke to Blessed. From the passage you read, it sounds like she was ill often. Was that the case? Yes. At that time, she had nervous breakdown, I think twice. One time they found her after days, hunched over in her bed, and uh, we had to resuscitate her and take her to the hospital. She had, was under such stress that that's what had happened to her. Is she still alive, and is she healthy? She's alive, healthy, and busy in business as usual. So, Don, where can people find your book, Jenny? Well, the, um, the publisher has it, I'm sure, uh, One Voice Press in Essex, Maryland. And I think you could probably find One Voice Press online if you Google it. It's, it's in the, in the Baha'i Publishing Trust also. Which uh, you can go to Baha'ibookstore.com as well. Yeah. And you spell the, the title G-I-N-N-Y. Correct. Well, Don, thank you so much for telling us about your book. It's quite an interesting subject. I think readers will get a lot out of it when they 
hear the transformative story of Virginia Rogers. Thank you so much, Don Hawley, for sharing that with us. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Donald Hawley, author of Jenny, How Virginia Rogers Went from Broke to Blessed. You can find Don's book on the publisher's website, onevoicepress.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Yeah.
asking God to help me through the very thing I needed to do. me 
about you Everything I thought at first turned out to be true And all the signs opened up and confirmed my suspicions more and more So my king, my beloved, my chorus line My symphony of chemistry, my perfect rhyme My love, my laughter, my diamond mine My horrible, my rapture, my when, where and why You are a vision of calm You are still waters And I'm a waterfall And you lead into me And I lead into you What I know now is I was right about you So my king, my beloved, my chorus line my symphony of chemistry, my perfect rhyme My love, my laughter, my diamond mind My horrible, my rapture, my when, where, and why When I'm needing you, I'm right there And when I'm drowning, you are a breath of air And when I'm wondering, you are the answer, you my king, my beloved, 
jump before the cameras The wisest ones might hardly ever speak And every time we send a perfect teacher We miss them Cause we overlook the meek I know you're out there I know you're in there But common knowledge doesn't know The jewels below I know you're out there I know you're in there Harmonizing heart and head Making stained glass from sand This one's for the folks who know they're precious No more precious than the garbage man I kiss you on your cheek, not on a poster Cause genius wants a lover, not a fan I know you're out there Knowledge doesn't know the jewels below. I know you're out there, I know you're in there. Harmonizing hearts and hands, making mirrors from sand. I know you're out there, I know you're in there. The cover stories can't uncover the true lover. That perchance 
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.